Let's pray together. Thank you that you shepherd us, Father. Thank you for your great wisdom in designing and guiding our lives. I want to thank you this morning for each one here. We recognize that you've given us enormous privileges. First, to know you and to follow you. But we also know that you've given us choices. And I would pray this morning that you would just empower us to take the choice to rejoice in you. Where you sit this morning, give praise to God in your heart just for who he is. Praise him that he's your maker and sustainer. Scriptures say that every good thing that we've ever experienced is from him. Praise him for that. Praise him that his mercy is what gives us the privilege of coming to him. Praise him that his plan is far superior to our own. And praise him that he's willing to dwell in us personally. And then this morning, let's ask him to work through us and in this community. Would you do that in your heart? Say, God, would you use me to make a difference where I live and work? the people I connect with. Would you pray to make yourself available to him for what he wants to do? And then let's pray for the pastor, the future pastor of ABF. Ask that God would be working in his heart, mind, family, and all that he does right now. That God would give him wisdom and strength and courage, a passion for Christ in this community and the world. And Father, as we pray for this person, we ask you to prepare us as well as a church to not assume, but to every day seek you, that you would tap him on the shoulder of his heart to respond to your nudges, your promptings, send the right connections. And then, Father, we pray that you will give him your insights to lead in the directions you want us to go. We pray in Christ's name. Ask now you'd fill me with your spirit. All God's people said. Amen. Well, good to see you. Good to be back. And uh, a few weeks ago when we left, we had just finished a series on the family. And I was reminded that one of the major roles of parents is to prepare their kids for what comes next. And, uh, but the question is, prepare for what? And how do we do that? Um, anybody here ever part of the Boy Scouts? Okay, what's the Boy Scout motto? Be prepared. Be prepared. And I thought about that myself. Prepared for what? It's a good question. Good emphasis. And... Um, I remember I was a Cub Scout, and then I had a six-week six tour of duty in the Boy Scouts. Uh, that's when they relieved me of my duties. 
because about five to six weeks in, it was my turn to bring refreshments. To, what do they call the, the weekly meetings of Boy Scouts? Pack meeting, right. So the pack, we were packed in there. And, but my buddy and I were the first ones there, and I supposedly brought the refreshments. I think my mother had made them. And boy, those suckers look good. And the next thing you know, my buddy and I had finished them all before anybody else got there. And the, uh, the, the, the scoutmaster later told me, and rightfully so, that's, uh, I, that I did not come prepared. And he's right. So anyhow, I was relieved of my duties. But, you know, throughout life, we have to ask the question, what does, uh, what does it mean to be prepared? Preparing our kids, preparing our own lives. What is that? If you go into the military, the military prepares you to, to fight. If you're in sports, what does sports prepare you for? Sports prepares you for how to handle your back aches later in life, right? We've all got knees, back, shoulders, and those kinds of things. Supposedly, it's to prepare you to push through the pain. It's one of the things in order to, to keep playing. In business, if you're in the business world or any profession, there's much preparation that's required if you're going to be successful in what you do. We understand that. But when we say, what does it mean to be, for, to be prepared for God? What does it mean? It means somehow to be available to be used for his mission and his purposes for our life. We want to look at that this morning. How do we do that? There are certain things we must do. We must feed our own heart through the scriptures. We, uh, whether it's prayer, whether it is planning. And uh, Rod spoke uh, Friday morning at, at the Men's Summit, as he mentioned. And one of the things he talked about, he talked to men about work in his uh, 34 years at Teradyne, was that just the every day that he learned to, to pray through every appointment that was coming, through every major decision. And that's the best preparation of all when we're doing the other things, but we're asking God to, to take over in those regards. But all of those things we've talked about are things that we do, and there are things we must do to prepare. But for the bigger picture of what God wants to, to write his story in you, to prepare us for his mission, it requires more than we can do. You see, we're limited in the amount of preparation. We're limited in our abilities and strengths. And so God comes along and he helps us because we need his help. And what does he do? Well, God begins to take us through a series of events, circumstances, challenges, <laughs> uh, joyful and painful experiences to prepare us for what he has for our life. The problem is we usually misinterpret those as we're going through them. In fact, if you take a look at the... Um, uh, at first, many of these seem to be a waste of time. God, just get me through this. We've all said, you know, once I get through this, I'm going to be okay. We talked about that several weeks ago. No, we aren't going to be okay when we get through something because God is planning to teach us all the way through the thing we wish we could get over right now. And if we don't have that perspective, we miss what God's trying to do in our life. When I talked to my uh, youngest daughter yesterday and talking about her career and she's in the fashion industry and she's having some physical pain right now and Kind of came back to this whole theme. You know, we can, don't waste your pain. <laughs> Let God speak to us through those things. And in fact, if you notice that the title on the outline today says, um, well, I've got it here somewhere. <laughs> what, is the, what does the title say on your outline? Yeah, it says, it was interesting because when I originally turned it in, it was supposed to say pain or preparation. And this one says pain in preparation, if you look at the front of the bulletin, it says, pain is preparation. So what is it? The answer is yes. Actually, I like all of them. I like three prongs to that. So that we don't waste our pain. Remember C.S. Lewis. 
who said, you know, God whispers to us in our joys and our successes, but he shouts to us in our pain. Wake up, say, hey, I'm doing something here. I want to talk to you. I want to communicate with you. And uh, so he's saying, don't waste your pain, which is another way of looking at that. Well, the theme of our next three weeks is what is God looking for in you and in me? And how is he preparing us by using all these circumstances? What is God after when he's looking? What's he looking for in you and for me? Well, to quote the phrase of a song that goes something like this, the first thing is you got to have what? Heart. You have to have heart. Look at the passage. In fact, read this with me from uh, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 16.9. Join me, would you please? The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth. Let's, let's try that again. Let's do that one together. Here we go. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You know what that verse is saying? God is looking for somebody that he can promote. Did you catch that? So often, I don't know about you, I was sort of raised where God's trying to hold you down and hold you in your place. Well, that's not what the scripture says. This verse is saying God is looking for someone he can promote to promote for what? To promote his cause in this world. That's what God is trying to do. And what is he looking for in order to do that? He's looking at our heart. So here's the question. How much of your heart does God have? See, that's the question for all of us. Does he have it? Or does he get the leftovers? How much of our heart is filled with our own agenda? How much of our heart is filled with him? Now the question is, what is the heart? What is the corazón? <laughs> well, the heart happens to be the seat of our desires, our passions, what we love, our treasure. He's simply saying, hey, am I your treasure? Over the years, I, that's one thing that connects with me. I say, you know, Lord, I want you to be the treasure of my life. Whatever you're trying to do, I want you to be the treasure of my life. And God wants to prepare our hearts so he can bless us to spread his influence through us. Now notice Jesus said something similar. Look at this. John, uh, excuse me, Luke 6, 45. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Have you ever done something or said something and said, you know, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I said that. Where did that come from? That's not like me. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> that is like us. It was there. It came out of our heart. That's why we went off on someone. I did this this week. I, my dear wife is here, but she's out with someone in the service. And uh, I guess confession is good for the soul. I didn't say this in the first service, but anyhow. It was Thursday night, and she was babysitting for grandkids in the midst of a crazy schedule. And she called and said, hey, the small group's coming tonight. And I said, what? They can't come tonight. And all of a sudden, I just went kablooey, and I lost it. I said, honey, that can't happen. There's no way. I didn't know I wasn't planning. And, and uh, she felt bad. I said, hey, forgive me for all that. But where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from inside of me. I was uptight because I had my agenda, my schedule, and I didn't want anything to interrupt it. And just because I had forgotten what was on the schedule, I mean, you know, that was my problem along the way. But it comes out of what's already in there. That's why Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, and in verse 9, he says, The heart's deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? <laughs> there are things in us that aren't real pretty. It's in the heart. Now, the question is this. How does God prepare us for his purposes, for his mission? We prepare for our profession, which we should. And we have plans that where our career, our profession, or our role in life should take us. It should go there. And we should have those plans as well. 
The only challenge with that is God has other plans. See, how many have found your plans fit God's plans 100%? I haven't discovered that. I've found my plans are, are pretty short, pretty short-sighted, pretty me-focused. And God says, I want to take you to something much better. I want to take you to a view where you can see what I want to do in your life and in this world. It's much better, you know, because it's easy for us to grovel around looking at the ground. And God says, I want you to see it from my point of view. And so he comes along to help us with that. His plans are a little different than ours. And this morning we're going to look at two models to remember. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 through 17 are two characters that are pretty well known to most people. And the first one we're going to look at, found in the beginning in the early parts of Samuel, is the man I call the scariest man in the Bible. Who do you think I'm talking about? King Saul. And why is Saul the scariest man in the Bible? Because he's most like us. He, he makes decisions like we do, and we'll see in just a moment. Saul is like us. It scares me. Every time I read Saul's story, I want to get right through it because I said, he's too much like me. And God, that's not where I want to be. But that's why God puts people like him in the Scripture. He was the first king of Israel. People of Israel said, God, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. He says, are you sure? He says, that's a bad idea. But if you want one, I'll give you one. By the way, have you ever got what you wanted? And it turned out to be... Not what you thought. Be careful of what you ask for from God because you might get it. And later on it can produce some major league pain in your life. And Israel asked for a king. They got one. Now, the interesting news is if you go back, Saul starts off on a, on, in a very uh, terrific direction. When Samuel the prophet goes to anoint him, it says Saul was the tallest and the handsomest man in all of Israel. He just stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And so he was, when the people said, hey, that's our king, sounded great to them. It turned out to be, early on, he was a man who followed God. He was a soldier, a fighter for his people. And when they came to the great celebration, and, and after he'd already, Samuel had already anointed Saul, and they had a big celebration, here's our king. They said, here's our king, and they, nobody could find him. They said, where is he? Well, he was over, it says, hiding in the baggage. This was too much for him to kind of be in public. At first, that sounds like humility. It's not. Because when you go through Saul's life, it was just nothing more than his self of self-consciousness, which is pride in a different way. It was always all about Saul. And this is what begins to find. And so as a young king, he begins to fight God's battles. But in chapter 13 is the first crack and the chink in the armor in Saul's life. It says that Israelites are surrounded by the Philistines. And an overwhelming number, and the soldiers of Israel begin to panic. And they're saying, God, what's going to happen to us? We can't fight them. And it says someone began to leave and they crossed the river Jordan because they just didn't want to face it. And Samuel had said, don't do anything, Saul. I'm going to come and after seven days I will offer the sacrifice. And for them that made some strength from God, God's support, and then maybe the battle would be won. Well, what happened? Saul doesn't wait. In fact, his men begin to desert and they begin to panic. Saul panics and he offers the sacrifice to God. Now, that was for the prophet to do, not for the king to do at this point. And so when Samuel the prophet shows up, he says, what have you done? And he tells us this in, in uh, 1 Samuel 13, 14. He says, because you disobeyed God, he says, now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. 
Now, at first, folks, you might say, well, is that a big deal? But what we learn from Saul's life here is that partial obedience damages hearts. When I do what I want to do, what God says, something happens inside of me. In fact, we pick this up and you go to chapter 15 and because he has disobeyed what God told him to do, God says, I've removed you as my king. In fact, it goes on to say, I wanted to establish you as an, with an eternal kingdom that would go on forever. That's what God would have done for Saul, but Saul says, I want to do it my way. In chapter 15, God, being the God of grace, gives him another opportunity. He says, Saul, I want you to go wipe out the Amalekites because for what they did my people. Now, some of us who live in this day have a hard time with understanding when God judges a culture. That's a whole other story. We've talked about that somewhat before. There's two kinds of judgment, the present judgment that's going on right now in the world and the one to come. But hey, this is what God tells him to do. And so we read in chapter 15 that Samuel, Saul goes out and he defeats the Amalekites. He's supposed to, to destroy all of them. And then it says because he's won, he goes off to build a monument to himself. And when he comes back out of town, there's Samuel the prophet waiting for him. And Saul says, hey, it's been a great day. We won. Did everything God told me to do. And he says, really? What's this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And so there's this whole bunch of livestock. They were supposed to wipe them out. And he says, oh, well, we saved the best so we could offer sacrifices to God. And he said, why didn't you do what God said? Twice, Saul says, I did, I did what God wanted me to do. You know, I did about 90% of what God wanted me to do. Samuel says to him, your kingdom has ended for sure. And folks, here's the principle. It's this. What happens in Vegas shuts the door to future opportunity. You see, does this a little compromise? I mean, hey, God, I wiped out 90% of what you told me to do. And just, I mean, what's the big deal? Does it really matter? I mean, who's going to really know about these things? What happens in Vegas? It's not a big deal, right? God says it shuts the door to future opportunity. And shuts the door on Saul's life. Just a little compromise. He goes on to say, finally, when Samuel rebukes him again, Saul finally admits, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then he says this, because I was afraid of the people. And Saul, Samuel turns to leave Saul and he says, no, don't go away. Come with me. Come back so, so that you can help me offer worship before the elders so that I will still be honored among the people. And folks, that tells you the heart of this man. He's far more concerned about his own reputation and what the leaders are going to think of him than what God thinks. And God says, Done. I don't need a leader like that. I got too many of those worldwide who look out for themselves and how they look before people instead of what God wants. And God says, no. He is rejected. You see, Saul demonstrates the danger of picking and choosing what parts of what God tells us to do we want to obey. From there on, his life goes downhill. Because partial obedience without genuine repentance does several things. It kills faith and courage and love for God. Sometimes we wonder why God's kind of out there and distant. Because we've ignored him. We've done it our way. It'll kill your faith. That's why we have trouble believing him for greater things. It's what kills courage. Why instead of stepping into what we need to, we step back. We don't realize it's those little compromises that begin to weaken us. And it leads to self-protection. How often do we have to fight self-focus and self-protection? 
just our whole life. You know, folks, we've talked about the American dream, which often says this. Don't ask me to do or say anything or go anywhere that might be hard for me. It'll make me uncomfortable. That's the American way of doing things. And God says, I can't use that. God has rejected Saul as a king. Why? Because he's a model for all the people. He says, I can't have a leader like that leading my people. He's a man who looks out for himself first. And so God closes the door on Saul's life. And at the same time that door is closing, guess what? Another one's opening on another potentially powerful young leader. And the whole world knows him as David of David. David is the next, the next king. And the scripture tells us that he is a man after God's own heart. But here's the question. How did David grow his own heart? How did God help him grow his own heart? And now let's take a look at chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the first verse says this. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. How did David's heart grow? The first thing we see is here in verse 1 is that David was pursued by God. God says, that's the man I'm going after him. Guess who else God pursues? You and me. If you belong to Jesus Christ today, it's because God pursued you first. It wasn't you thought of him first. We responded, but that was God's nudge to your heart. He's been reaching out, loving, saying, I want you since before you were born. David was pursued by God. And along the way, he is also affirmed by Samuel the prophet, who's God's spokesman in this culture. But before he gets to meet David, Samuel has some lessons to learn as well. It says he mourns the loss of Saul. The first thing Samuel has to learn is that God is still at work when our plans go crash. Samuel, somehow his life was tied up in Saul's because he had anointed Saul. And somehow it must have been that his reputation was tied up in how well Saul turned out, and Saul blew the blueprint. He fumbled. He dropped the ball. And God says, go forward. I'm not done. And what looks like an ending, yes, is often a new beginning when God's involved. And this is an example of what we have here. So the first thing he has to do, Samuel has to learn to move forward. And secondly, he now goes to Jesse's home and something else God is going to do, he has to learn to break culture lock. What do I mean by that? Very interesting because the first thing that happens when Samuel gets to Jesse's home, he says he sees his oldest son, Eliab, and he sees him, his tall, impressive oldest son. And he says, that's the one. And God says, not so fast, pal. He's not. He's not my pick. He might be yours. Because Samuel still had this idea of kings are tall, impressive-looking which is the Hollywood version of how to do a king, right? Which is the culture we live in. we got to have someone looking impressive, sounding impressive, all of those kinds of things. And God says, wait a minute, not so fast. He had to break the culture lock. If I were to say, too, what's our view of leadership in this culture? One of the things I find in God's giving us the privilege of training pastors on six continents and leaders is that so often people will say, well, a pastor or a leader, a Christian leader, 
must be a good communicator. Now, folks, I'll be the first to admit that should help. That should be in there somewhere, but it's not number one. Did you know the greatest apostle of them all who wrote most of the New Testament, and his name was what? Paul. What was his name before Paul? Saul. Isn't that interesting? And God made him Paul. Paul means what? Anybody ever heard of Paul Bunyan? Remember Paul Bunyan? Okay, the, the, the legendary guy, you know, Babe the Blue Ox and all that. Paul means little. God changed his name from Saul to Paul, which means little. But anyhow, he's saying here that uh, our view of leadership, Paul was critiqued in his ministry for being a lousy speaker. Isn't that interesting? Yet the man who's had more influence on a Western and worldwide civilization than anything except Jesus, he says, but wait a minute, I don't lack knowledge. And so even our own views of leadership and what's important and what are the top priorities, God's are a little different than ours. One of the reasons it's more important that you can be a terrific communicator to cover up weaknesses of the heart. So don't be fooled by people's public appearances. God is still looking at the heart. In fact, that's what he has to tell Samuel. And this is the, the very famous verse in chapter 16. He says at verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, talking about Eliab, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what he's saying here. And so Samuel then, he says, okay, if he's not the one, he now looks at the six other sons of Jesse. And as he goes through each one of them, God says, nope, 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 nope. And now Samuel's confused. Well, wait a minute. Well, God, you said it was one of his sons. And so finally he puts... Two and four together, and he gets, he says, wait a minute, do you have any other sons? And yeah, and, and, and Jess says, well, of course I do, but, but he's the youngest, and he's out tending the sheep. Wait a minute, time out. Didn't Samuel invite all of Jesse's sons to this feast? Yes. Let me ask you this, was David a son of Jesse? Yes. Why wasn't he included with the other brothers? Does it sound like something a little wrong there, folks? What does that sound like to you? Anybody remember Home Alone? You love that one? I do, I do too, buddy. You got it. You, we'll watch that sometime. But anyhow, that was by accident, okay? And we know the whole drama. This one was intentional, folks. I mean, but, but wait a minute. He's the youngest, he doesn't count. He's out taking care of the sheep, which was the lowest job in the family. Did you know that? We've made it a glamorous position. No, it was the lowest thing there was. Before we're too hard on Jesse, before we bring the hammer down on him, we need to remember something. He was simply operating out of the law of primogenitor. How many know that law? Some of you do. It's the idea that the inheritance and the family clan is passed on to the oldest son. He's the one that's passed down in that culture. God says, that might work in your culture, but mine's a little different. In fact, if you go through the scripture and you see all the way through, there's Ishmael and then Isaac. There's Jacob and then there's Esau. There's Manasseh and then there's Ephraim. And all the way through, God turns it upside down. He was simply saying, but he's my youngest, which means what? He's not as smart, he's not as strong, and therefore not as valuable as my older sons. What does that sound like to you? How many would enjoy growing up in a home like that? 
It's called neglect. What's the difference between neglect and abuse? Did you know that studies are showing the results in the life of a child between neglect and abuse are about the same? Very similar. It's simply saying neglect, well, you don't really count. Did this have anything to do with David growing up later on? I think so. David was a lousy father. He never got over this one. But what we begin to see here is that David's life also demonstrates that God's call outweighs family neglect. Because God, when David comes in, the Lord speaks to Samuel and he says, that's the one, anoint him. And David is anointed the next king. Now, folks, it's only 13 years before he becomes king. He's got a wild and woolly future ahead of him. But he's anointed king. He's picked by God. And we're reminded here that God's call outweighs family neglect. God sees what others don't. By the way, in families, do people ever get overlooked by parents or grandparents or anyone or siblings, older siblings? All the time. It happens all the time. And also people around us, we over, often overlook them. I just read a thing on Steve Jobs, and uh, you know, Steve died recently. And, and one of the things that uh, he stated in there about, he says, be careful of nerds. He says, you'll probably work for one someday. That was part of his story. But here it's simple to say it's so easy. In fact, Ray Bolts wrote a song years ago about David. And the words went something like this. While others saw a shepherd boy, God saw a king. Because God isn't looking for what other people are looking for. Who have you overlooked? By the way, have you overlooked yourself? As to someone God may have significant plans for? Because no one else has applauded or said, you're it? What if God says, you are it? You're the one I want to use. I have plans for you that you haven't thought about. God's call outweighs family neglect. And the proof of it was, it says that he's anointed, and then the Spirit of God comes upon him. And David demonstrates again that, that as he receives God's power, that that trumps human recognition, that also trumps human limitations. People say, you can't do it. What have people told you you cannot do? Or there probably isn't going to happen in your life or because of you. David receives God's power. And that same Holy Spirit that comes upon David in power is the same Holy Spirit that indwells every believer who gives his life to Jesus Christ. Now, we may not tap into that power. He may go unused, but he resides in everyone who opens their life to Christ. The same power that rested on David. Scriptures make that very clear. And so God's saying, I have put in you a powerhouse for me. But what does that mean? Look at this verse. Here's what I think this means. The great apostle Paul was given a thorn by God to keep him from being prideful, which is amazing to me, when all the pain he went through. And he three times said he asked God to take it away. And notice God's response. Each time the Lord said, my grace is all you need. My grace, my favor. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ can work through me. God's power is showcased in your weakness and in mine. So the question is this. What are yours? What have others said you cannot do? 
What have we told ourselves? God says, bring me your weakness and I will showcase myself in your life. Uh, some of the men, as we go through our men's summit, we're, we're doing strength finders, Myers-Briggs, whatever it is, those guys discerning and growing and understanding who they are. And I think it's a wonderful tool. If you haven't taken strength finders, it's a wonderful, men or women. You'll find out the giftedness that God's given you. It's, it's used widely in industry. The only problem with that is that if we think that's all God's going to use, our strengths, we've missed it. It's a wonderful tool. God says, come along. He says, he says we tend to take credit for our own strengths. God says, that's why I'm going to use your weaknesses, because you can't take credit for that. One of the things my wife and I feel as we go around the world is that, hey, no, God, you put us in a place of weakness. We show up in a place of weakness. We are the foreigner. We're in their culture. And God says, yeah, you get to rely on me. So God's power and his spirit comes upon David. He comes upon you as well and affirms also that God creates opportunities then in the form of human need. What do we mean by that? Because of Saul's rebellion, it results in the fact that he damages himself it says God sends a tormenting spirit that produces depression and fear in Saul. Okay? Now the question is, is Saul's problem psychological or is it theological? What do I mean by that? He's experiencing now greater depression and greater fear. That's the psychological manifestation. But how did he get that way? He said, God, I'm going to do it my way. His problem is a theological problem underneath it. Now, folks, we live in a culture, and believe me, I've taken the psychological courses at the doctorate level. Uh, I, you know, I counsel I, different things. I've been to counseling, right? Believe in all those things. But what we miss in our Western culture is we say, okay, this person has psychological problems. Give them a pill or let's talk about it. And all those things can be helpful. But what God is saying, every one of us has experienced some emotional, psychological damage because of our own independence from God. Our own sin has led to some of our fears, some of our doubts, some of our insecurities. And until we recognize that, no matter how many pills you take or how much counseling you go to, you probably aren't going to experience the healing that God wants. In James chapter 5, it says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Very interesting. He doesn't say hide it. He doesn't say take a pill for it. And by the way, I've taken medication. Some of you know my story of depression. But he's saying also, in that earlier part of that chapter, he says, if any among you is, our translation says, sick, let him call upon the elders and anoint him and pray for him. The word is asthenia. It means weakness. It can be weakness of any kind, emotional weakness, physical weakness, spiritual weakness. And what he's saying, you're not going to be healed until God enters in. There's prayer over that. And then we come back to God and say, am I going to do it your way or am I going to do it my way? And folks, Saul is a perfect example. He experienced deep, deep emotional pain because he did it his way. And we live in a world, particularly the Western world, that ignores that. And so what happens is that his advisors are smart. And they say, hey, let's bring in somebody who's skilled in the harp and can play and can comfort your damaged, tormented nerves and emotions. He says, great, bring me someone. And they bring in this kid, David, from the hills, David, the shepherd boy. As it turns out, notice his opportunity, because it says, first of all, David is skilled with a harp. By the way, what skills have you developed? He's skilled with a harp. Now, the question is, where did he learn to play the harp? Well, the best we know is when David was out taking care of the sheep, he was also serenading them. It was just God, sheep, and David, and David's playing. And he develops his skills out there where there's nobody else. And he can sing. 
And what's interesting is God not uses just this little skill to play. He's a tremendous musician. That when David becomes king, he leads the entire nation in worship like it's never been led. In fact, in the entire Bible, in the entire world, the model for worship is led by the shepherd boy. And also, this tells you the source of his strength. See, how's that? David, if you read the Psalms, focused, he poured out his heart to God. But whenever he said, God, I'm weak, you're strong. God became the source of his strength. He was God-focused. He looked up. And in the midst of pain and suffering and sorrow, he praised God. By the way, don't waste your pain. If you're in pain, hurt, and anything, start praising God for who he is. I didn't say for your problems. Just praise God. Watch what happens. It's the only way you'll get lifted above it. My daughter uh, mentioned, I think it was first service, that she's in the fashion industry, and she called the other day, and she's got some sciatica pain and for different reasons, and she's a runner and obviously very fit. And... Uh, we were talking about it, and I just said, hey, Phil, her name's Melissa. Um, I said, um, because I nickname everybody, and she's got like four names from her father. But anyhow, that's the one I use. And I said, um, you know, honey, don't waste this. You know, he says, yeah, right, Dad. I said, praise him in your pain. Not for it, but in it. Say, God, you're bigger than this stuff. Whatever else you need to do, you do that. And she's doing it. It's the thing I have to remind myself over and over. And David's a praiser. The skill that he develops eventually leads a whole nation because he's the worship king in budding right here. And then it says that he was a brave warrior. In fact, let me tell you where I'm getting that from. It's verse 18. It says, one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he's a brave warrior, man of war, and he has good judgment. He's also a fine-looking young man. A little humor there from God. And the Lord is with him. So first of all, he's skilled with a harp. What skills are you developing that God can use? Then it says he's a brave warrior. Now, how did David's reputation come that he's a brave warrior when he just shows up as this teenage kid? You say, well, Goliath. No, no. Goliath is until the next chapter. And if we're going chronologically, he hasn't even conquered Goliath yet. So how does he get the, the idea of a brave warrior? We don't really know. But here's how we know David gained his courage. Because when David goes to Saul and he sees this giant out there in the entire armies of Israel hiding in fear, including his older brothers, he's saying, well, what is this? And uh, David says, he has defied the armies of the living God. So he goes to Saul and he says, I'll take him on. And he says, you've got to be kidding. And Saul's looking down at David, this little kid. He says, try my armor. And David says, that doesn't fit. And everybody knows the story worldwide of the sling and the stone that took out Goliath. But David shows something incredible here. He shows two things. Number one, he shows that what's motivating him while the entire military is hiding, David walks right in and says, I'll take him on. Put your armor aside. You see, while everybody else was looking at Goliath, David said he's defied the armies of the living God. David was looking above. His courage that he developed. And by the way, he sent to Saul, and here's what he told him. He says, um, he says, when a wild animal attacks my sheep, because he's a shepherd, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. When the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this both to the lions and the bears, and I'll do it again to the giants this weekend. That's a little joke, football. To this pagan Philistine, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I watch Nat Geo Wild. 
And they have the ones on killer, you know, and they show, it's really cool. They show orcas eating seals and they show, you know, lions eating things. It's really a guy kind of stuff. Most women don't like to watch that. You like to watch that too? I'm with you, buddy. Anyhow, um, he likes that one too. He's a little boy, right? Mamas, remember that. And so I watch these animals. Now, folks, I don't know. When's the last time you were out, you grabbed a lion by its mane and clubbed it to death? Or a bear? I don't care if it's a small one. I am not going to take one of those on. Okay? So how in the world does this little kid risk his life for the sake of his father's stinking little sheep? And he, he forfeits his own security in order to do that. What has he done? He's developed courage that the whole nation lacks. Because they're looking at circumstances. They're looking at the problems. They're looking at the giants. And he says, he defied, he defied the armies of the living God. And he says, because God gave them into my hand, these wild animals, he's going to give Goliath, this giant, into my hand. Two things, a focus on God and number two, a faith that God will overcome. You see, this is what the entire nation needs. This little kid who leads, eventually lead the nation in worship will also lead it in terms of courage. What he doesn't know is that his battles have just begun. For the next 13 years, he will be running from Saul. And then after that as the king, he'll go out and fight battle after battle. And by the way, how long do your spiritual battles last, folks? Till the day you die. How often do you face a spiritual battle? Every day. Even if you can't see it or feel it with the choices that we make. The enemy knows us better than we know ourselves. Do we choose to spend time with God when oppression, difficulty, circumstances, how do we interpret them? What do we do when we're struggling with temptation on the inside? Your school, your work will not prepare you for any of that. We have to learn to fight God's battles in our heart first. And then in prayer for others. And when we do that, God begins to work. You see, David's battles help define his life mission. Do you realize your difficulties, your pain, your problems, if you turn them over to God in prayer, that's the way to fight the battle, becomes defining of your life message and your life mission. And some of those painful things, you say, oh, God, just get me out of this, for what God has designed all along to make you the person he designed you to be. Your culture isn't going to tell you that. But God does. And that's what we see in David's life. And then it says, he's a man with good judgment. Well, what does that mean? And by the way, what were David's secrets? He praised God when he was alone. <laughs> he faced his fears. He didn't run away from them. He stepped into them. And then it said he had good judgment. Because before David went to war, if you go to 1 Samuel 30, in the end of this book, you'll see over and over again, he said, God, should I go off? Should I go off? Should I fight this battle or not? Do you ask God what battles to fight in your own life? If there's difficulties? See, he wants to take over. And so David would say, should I go up? And the Lord said, yeah, go after him. I'll give him to you. I'll give him into your hand. Saul was rash. He would run away or he would hide. He wouldn't ask God. But David did. David did. And it begins to reveal also the power of his life. And then it says he was a fine-looking young man. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God just say man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart? Well, they're reporting about David. They said, by the way, he's good-looking. <laughs> Yeah, so it is God's sense of humor here. David was a handsome man. That didn't necessarily help him in battles, though. And the question is this, what do others see in you? And I'm not talking about your physical appearance. Everybody looks great on Sunday morning. I don't mean that. But when they looked at David, before they described he was good looking, 
he somehow already had a reputation of being skilled, of being a man of war and courage, good judgment. And the final thing is that David was a man that said the Lord is with him. And the question is simply this, how does God operate in you? The next verse tells us the key to David's secret. Acts 13, 22. It says, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, wouldn't it be nice to have God say this about you? I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And here's the kicker, underline this part. He will do everything I want him to do. Notice it didn't say he feels like doing everything I want him to do. It says he does everything I want him to do. Does that describe your life? Or do we pick and choose? And does God have that opportunity in us? Now, folks, if it appears risky or dangerous or fearful, then you're in the middle of a risk of faith, and that's where God meets you. Saul turned away. He did it his own way. But if you'll step into the fear, say, God, I do this for you, now you get faith and you get courage, but you don't get it before you step into it. That's the law of leadership. That's the law of following Christ. Take the risk of faith, bank it all on Jesus, and watch what God does in terms of your own life. You say, well, wait, 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 Roland. Isn't this the same David that sinned pretty grossly against God? Yeah, you're right. This is the David who murdered Uriah, one of his own captains, his military, one of the great leaders of Israel. And then he committed adultery with his wife. Actually, he did him the other way around to cover up. This is the same David when God said, kings, do not number your people because your trust is in me. Don't do it. David numbered Israel anyhow, and thousands died because of it. How's that? But the scripture also tells us that David still had, God still had David's heart in Psalm 51. David writes these. He says, sacrifices you don't want God, but a sacrifice you want is a broken and a contrite spirit. Now, how did David know that? Because he'd been pursuing God. And he went back to God based on his mercy. He knew what he deserved. He deserved death. And God said, no, I'm not going to kill you. You'll have other problems. <laughs> I'll leave you here on earth. That's a problem. But David's heart belonged to God. And here's the point. A heart fully committed to God is not a perfect heart. It's one that's pointed in God's direction at all times. Whether you blow it or whether you succeed. It's a heart that belongs to him. And folks, every day is a test through circumstances, through pain, through failure, where are we going to turn? It's the test of our heart. So that God wrote David's, his story on David's, even his sin and his failure. God can do that in our life as well. And before we close in prayer, I want you to take out that blue sheet in your outline. We're going to close with this. These are preparation experiences that God brings into leaders' lives, and not just leaders, but all of us, because we all have influence. What I want you to do is take a pen or pencil and just circle the ones that you think apply to you just as I read through these and then we'll close in prayer. First one is this. God will take you through experiences that help you identify with those you are called to serve. Did you know that? For instance, if you're called to minister to the grieving, your own grief will prepare you for that task. I know what it's like to lose a wife to cancer. I know it's like to be a pastor for 37 years. I identify. And God had reasons for those. He doesn't waste our pain. Here's another one. Many of your experiences build the faith and fortitude muscles you'll need to succeed in your calling. <laughs> Here's an example. 
Dealing with the annoying people in your office builds the skills and character to deal with human needs on a larger scale. Anybody have any of those? No, you don't have to raise your hand on that. Yeah, those sandpaper people, God's saying, wait a minute, they're not a waste. He brings them into our lives for a purpose. Catch that? How about this one? Failure is as good a preparation as success. Anybody here fail? Could you put up your hand, please? Okay, I said, if any of you have failed, would you please put up your hand? Okay, we only have about six liars in this service. Okay, a few more than last service. We've all failed. Of course we have. It's hard to believe that that's preparation. If your calling involves revitalizing dying organizations, what better preparation than to be part of an organization that dies, or better yet, to lead one? You know what that's saying? Don't waste your failures. Great, okay? Often, how's it known? God has to excise or cut out a lesser love in your life to make room for you to embrace his greater purpose. Those are the things, those loves that come ahead of him, our Isaacs. Having your company go belly up is an excellent way to become detached from pursuing material things <laughs> or losing a job or having a kid go haywire. Okay, on and on. Here's one. When God deals with a leader, everyone who serves under that person also gets dealt with. This adversity may be primarily about someone else's preparation. Are you willing to pay a price for their destiny? You thought about that? You might work for a lousy boss sometime. Or you might be the lousy... No, I shouldn't say that. Next one. Your place of power in ministry is where God has most deeply dealt with your character because that's where Christ is most fully incarnate in you. For instance, if you're called to teach leadership skills... Expect God to put your own leadership under a microscope and hold you to an unfairly high standard compared to others. Have any of you ever been in that situation? Here's another one. God often gives leaders a glimpse of their call early in life, but then there's a long season of inward preparation and relative obscurity, and he's talking years or decades, before they emerge into that call. If you feel stuck in the middle of that season, it always helps to look at the timelines of Abraham, David, Joseph, Paul, or even Jesus. And you could add to that Sarah and Ruth and Esther and Rahab and any number of others in Scripture. How about this one? God will not allow you to enter your call from a place of security where all your needs are met. Your destiny will require faith for God's provision. You see, sometimes we say, well, God, for me to step out and do this, I've got to have all my financial things lined up and secure here. I've got to have all this done. I have to have all the right things. God said, no, no, that's not what I call you. He doesn't call us when everything's secure. He calls us where our security is in him. Powerful principle here. Big leadership challenges early in life can be an indicator of a large sphere calling. How about this one? Graduating successfully from a certain stage of your preparation is usually marked by a removal from that sphere. Let me stop for a moment. Working with guys in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, a lot of them have had 20, 30 years in the business, and either they've left it, sold their business, or maybe they even got laid off, and all of a sudden, this whole huge thing. And it looks like all that was a waste. Well, keep reading here. Are facing a larger challenge. Endings don't mean you failed. God wouldn't give it to you if he didn't think you were ready for it. That was one way God got us out of the old so he could do something new by keeping us, pulling us out of our security blanket. That's how God works. And then also this one. A wilder, I love this. A wilderness season is a mark of special affection from God. Time out. What does that mean? A wilderness season is when you're alone or you feel like you've been put on the back burner or things aren't happening the way you want them to be. Everybody else has forgotten you. God says, hold on. 
He leads us into the desert to draw us deeper into intimacy with Him. It's an opportunity in your loneliness, in your feeling isolated, to love Him who's given His whole life for you because He's doing something different than you think. It's an opportunity to grow in intimacy with the one who loves you the most. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that you're in charge and we're not. I want you just to talk to God in your heart for a moment, whatever you've heard this morning. Can you pray this simply? It expresses the desire of your heart. Say, dear God, would you use all these experiences to make me like you? Because, folks, that's the first part of God's plan is to make us like Jesus. It may not be our plan, but it's his. And then secondly, we pray this. God, I offer myself to you in all these experiences I've had, the good ones, the painful ones, the difficult ones I'm facing right now. I offer myself to you and these experiences. And I want you to fulfill your mission in me for my life. Help me begin to see this world and this life differently than I do now. Help me to see it through your eyes. Maybe this morning you walked in and you have some real questions about your relationship with God. Well, God says you have, are asking some right questions. Jesus Christ has come and he's fully offered himself to us as our great shepherd. But he won't force his way into anyone's life. Maybe you know about him. Maybe you deeply desire him. But if you're really honest and you said that today was the last day of your life on this earth, perish the thought. Would you have confidence that you would go to live with him forever today? God says, I want you to know that you can have that confidence. Open your life to me. Receive my forgiveness. Admit that we've done it our way in so many areas. He said, that's why I died on a cross for you. Invite me into your life. And then say, Jesus, empower me to follow you the rest of my life. He keeps all of his promises, and he'll keep that promise to you. If today you open your life to Christ, welcome to his family. Tell someone here about that. And Father, now we come to you recognizing that you're our reason for joy, for success. You're the one who suffered much for us so that we can know your joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.